You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Who's Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have someone who has been a huge personal inspiration for me, for me and someone who actually had a big impact on, on my life growing up, uh, Greg Tanner, to tell the story of the legendary site streetball.co.uk. You know, I think for those of us that were from that era, uh, we all know the impact that it had on the culture um, and basketball in this country at that time. It was huge. It was followed by everyone, and, and that was the, the place to be. So it was, it was super interesting to kind of get into the backstory about why he set it up and kind of the, the levels that it got to. Before we do get into the show, obviously got to do a quick mention for our Patreon account. Uh, we are coming directly to you, our audience. If you go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash hoopsfix, there you can sign up to give as much or as little as you'd like every single month to help support the work that we're doing, to help fund interviews like this, to help our contributions to the British Basketball Media landscape. So please go to patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix and sign up to support our work. Have a listen. Uh, let me know what you think. You can drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com, or you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at hoopsfix. Uh, please do give us a rating uh, and review on iTunes if that's where you're listening. And that is enough from me. Uh, here is this week's show with me and Greg Tanner. Greg, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, good. It's going to be a, a good trip down down memory lane for me today because obviously, as you probably know, Streetwater UK was a huge part of my upbringing um, I'm sure you hear people tell you all the time like what an impact it had on them growing up and for me personally it was it was just a massive part of my life uh, so I guess you know going into your background and in, in kind of the, the early days um, how did you first get into basketball? Uh, so there was a guy at uh, school who was in a year below me and a year above my brother and he was born in Canada half Canadian and he was into basketball uh, he became pretty good friends with my brother and he introduced us to uh, NBA Jam that was uh, shown on ITV Saturday lunchtimes, early afternoon, presented by Alton Bird, who was sort of, you know, a BBL legend back in the day. But it was basically a highlight magazine show of NBA highlights and features, but presented by this British guy to give it a, well, American British guy to give it a British feel. And this was, we got into it, I think it was the 93-94 season. So Jordan had just gone. But it was like the Gary Payton, Sean Kemp era. It was the Hakeem Olajuwon era. It was, you know, it was still very exciting. And I, as someone who'd never been hugely into sport much, uh, apart from skateboarding, all of a sudden I was, there was this sport that was high flying and explosive and fast paced. And we just really got into it. And then from there, we like put a hoop up in my mum's driveway that drove the neighbours up the wall. And, you know, we used to play there. We didn't even fully know the rules. Like our friend who who introduced us, this guy, Anthony, you know, I I swear he used to say, if you held the ball above your shoulder height, you couldn't dribble it again. Like even if he hadn't dribbled it. Anyway, we we played these makeshift rules. And then around this exact time, I think it was like about March 94, um, they built a, a big double basketball court near where we live. And the London Towers came down like Martin Henlon and all his boys came down and did a little photo shoot. And we just started spending our lives at, at the basketball court. And not, there were like-minded kids in the area who did the same. And then before you knew it, that court was pretty much where we lived. And in the summer and in the summer holidays, 10 in the morning to 10 at night until until the ball smacked you in the face because you couldn't catch the pass because it was too dark. That was, that was life. So 
ultimately it was a school friend who was into basketball that showed us about it and it went from there so were you always playing uh sort of uh, recreational unorganized basketball did you end up playing sort of competitively for teams and stuff oh god no uh so i mean the first year or so of going down the basketball court i i mainly used to skateboard i just like being there because you know um it was sort of a new group of friends and it was cool and people would have the stereo on and i i'd mess around on the court but i was still mainly into skateboarding I think it was the summer of 95 when I turned 17 that I actually started playing a bit properly. And actually, it was the summer after that, 96, when me and my friend, I'd say most of the people at the court were a bit younger than us, maybe one, two, three years younger than me and my friend. And we did our A-levels in 96. So we finished for the summer, like a month before everyone else. And we got on this training thing. And like I was doing squats and calf raises and I went from like just being able to touch the hoop with my fingertips to being able to like grab it two hands and 360 a tennis ball. I could never dunk a proper ball because I've got tiny hands. <laughs> but I, and I got more into playing it. Um, and then we used to occasionally go to other courts and play other kids. But I never, never like took it seriously. Like a lot of the guys I grew up with really wanted to make it. And you know, some, some of them were, were, were really good, but I never had those ambitions. Uh, and for me, it was always fun. And I never even really worked on my game. You know, I'd never like seriously shoot 300 jump shots or seriously do drills. Like I just, I just messed around basically. And it was, it was always fun. And it's a good job. I mean, I'm five for 10. I'm not the most athletic guy in the world. I think if I had had ambitions of making it, I would have been gravely disappointed. <laughs> but it was, no, for me, it was just always, it was always like a social thing and just something that I was into for fun. And so then, obviously, there was a transition to setting up Streetwear Co. UK. So I guess, you know, where did the idea first come from? How did it first materialise? So I've always, I've always been kind of a creative person. Like I started playing guitar when I was 14. I was very heavily into music in my teenage years. I used to draw a little bit, cartoons and stuff. And so in the late 90s, when the internet started becoming a thing, uh, I thought to myself, I I want to want to build a website. You know, I'd got into I'd got really into like chat rooms and message boards about basketball, about hip hop, about various things. And one day I was like, I want to set up a website. So I just made I I had an AOL account and you got like twenty megabytes of free space. This was like ninety nine, and I'm like, all right, what am I going to make a website about? So, so I'm embarrassed to say I basically made it about hot women and basketball. <laughs> Like I had pictures of like the, the the actresses or the pop stars at the time that, that I was into, and then things about basketball and little like gifts. You know, this is this was years. You know, this was six years before YouTube even came into existence. But you know, I I I, I had the technology to like take a little video of Iverson crossing Jordan and make it into an AVI, and I you know, and I used to write these things like, right, I'm really into crossovers and blah 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 blah. So it just um I just started it off on on this free web space. And then I thought, now this is, and literally I was just doing it for my own amusement. Like it was, it was like a creative outlet and I was just messing around. But then I thought, no, I, I, I want to focus it on basketball. And actually I had over the years, again, because I, I've always kind of been creative. I had over the years been filming guys at the local basketball court, but also like London Youth Games, going to events with a little high eight uh, camcorder. And I thought, I've actually got quite a few cool little clips. Um, so I'm I'm gonna focus it on basketball, and I and then in May 2000 I registered a domain name because again I was like 
and you know, this was 2000. This was like peak dot-com era. Everyone was like getting on the website thing. And I literally was just doing it for, for fun, for a hobby. So I registered the, the, the domain name, focused it on basketball. And because I worked in television, uh, I've always been a television news producer, uh, I had access to like editing suites. This was, this was really a few years before it became possible to really edit on your own PC. And, you know, just AVI and MPEG files were huge and, and the soft, you know, the processor speeds weren't enough. But I had access to editing equipment. So I used to, I used to go into work with my little Hi8 tapes, dump them off onto these big beta tapes that were like the professional standard back then, and edit these very rough little mixtape clips. Uh, at first, they, they didn't even have audio. It would be 10 seconds of someone putting a ball through someone's leg. But then it evolved into like two-minute cut-to-music type things. And um, and yeah, like it, it, it just that 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 was that was the beginnings of it. But I was literally not doing I didn't think anyone was was viewing. I was doing it for my own amusement and enjoyment. So so in terms of like, I know when I started filming, I was using mini DV tapes uh, and that was a process like, you know, you're filming, you then download the footage. Like it just it took so long. So in terms of the actual process from from filming a because I wanted people to get the idea of the oh, era that we're talking about, like the process right. of filming a game and then getting onto a onto a computer screen and then getting it off a computer screen into an edit that you're going to then upload to the Internet. Like what was that process and how laborious was it? I'm going to say people people doing video content now who who weren't of that era don't know they're born that you can film an entire thing not have to worry about the space clip out your little bit upload it from your phone immediately put all the grading and the graphics on it so i wasn't even in the beginning shooting on mini dv i was shooting on high eight you know the bigger okay. tapes you know wow. the ones the ones are almost like audio cassette yeah. tapes and used to get chewed up and whatever and because um back then you know file sizes now you can buy a one terabyte hard drive for like 40 pounds you know back then uh you know your hard your computer hard drive might be 60 no hang on like maybe 200 megabytes yeah. it certainly wasn't a gigabyte i'm yeah. telling you that yeah, right yeah. now so what i had to do was i'd get the tape and go back and watch it through with a with a notepad and note down time codes like time code uh 106 leon dunk 109 tail dunk then go back and capture just 20 seconds either side of the clip and then and then you would have it because if you if you imported the whole two-hour tape it, it just wasn't physically possible the technology yeah. wasn't there wow. and i remember i started buying hard drives i go to pc world or whatever and you buy these hard drives this big that were 200 200 megabytes like a fifth of a gigabyte and it would be like 200 pounds so it was laborious and then you would you would edit it and you'd and you'd have to compress it a lot again because you know people were on 56k dial-up internet so you'd compress the hell out of it end up with like a four five six megabyte file that would then take three hours to upload and then every single person that then wanted to watch the video and this is the story that so many people tell me is they'll be like yeah i used to go on streetball and see there's a new video so you know right click save as and it would be like right sa saving saving dunks dot avi or dot mpeg and you had to you you had to wait you had to wait like three hours some people would leave it overnight to download um and it's it's actually funny it's funny because i remember when uh it must have been about four four or five years ago now but you were doing your event and i was uh i was i couldn't make it i was at home but i had on a big <clears throat> 60 inch tv the live feed of it and it hadn't got going yet it was just the wide shot of the court 
And I was like, this is insane. Like the, the girl I was living with at the time, I said, this is insane. I used to have to go through this process to get a two minute pixelated clip up that people had to wait three or four hours to download. And now there's a guy kind of doing what I did now and he's doing an event and he's live streaming it in HD and I'm watching it on the 60 inch television. And that was just in probably eight or nine years, like yeah. the, the, the way the technology advanced. So to get back to your original question, it was a very long and, and laborious process. Is the, I mean, in some ways, is the only way you were able to do it because of the fact that you worked where you worked and so you had access to the studios, was there any way of like, if you wanted to do it at home, like at, at that time and have some sort of editing software on your computer or whatever, like, was that possible? Or? I, would, I would say in the first year, it would have been very hard. Um, the year 2000, and all, you know, like I, 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 I had a job paying 12 grand a year. Like I, I did not have um, a lot of finances for this. So I just had like a compact Presario PC that I'd borrowed money from my nan and used to pay her back monthly, um, uh, you know, to, to own. And it, that sort of level, you couldn't really edit on, on your computer. And plus I kind of learned the editing process from from work you know i saw how to lay shots how to how to cut things together so i would say had i started it a couple of years later and you and you know programs that were available on your pc then yeah but that first year 2000 2001 i had to do ev everything at work which is what in some ways made it so unique because you were so uniquely placed that you were pretty much the only person that sort of had that access to that type of equipment yeah. and then also was interested in basketball in a way that you wanted to do that right yeah but i mean i think i think i was i was lucky in so much as it was such early days of the internet that nobody else was really on it i had a passion for being creative so i had the drive to start a website to basically go into work at night and edit these videos i had the technical skills you know i'd learned from editors how to do it um, I, you know, I'm a journalist, so you know, writing writing was good to me. I taught myself HTML and JavaScript and all that. Um, so I was like uh, a one man band. Where whereas there were other there were other. So for example, I listened to your interview with with uh, Roger Hosanna the other day, and he said that they they didn't have the expertise to do what I was doing, and and I think that's completely fair. Like I didn't have their history uh, within the game, or you know, the sort of deep roots that they did you know i was just you know he said streetball kind of came out of nowhere and i would i would agree i was just this kid from the suburbs who, who started this website that kind of blew up so whilst i didn't have that infrastructure and history and respect within the community i had the technical ability and the passion um to to, to be a one-man shop you know the, those guys they had a website but they didn't have someone that you know was super good at editing so yeah so that's that's kind of how it developed into into what it was you know the fact that, that i i was sort of multi-skilled and loved it and so that first version of streetwork.co.uk yeah. that ended up online what did that look like and and not only what did it look like like what in terms of the content that was actually on the site um but also like what what were you thinking when you launched it like were you thinking this is i want this to grow into a thing no no nah, it was like, just like this is cool i enjoy it i'm just gonna stick this online 100 percent like um, I'm trying to I'm trying to liken it to something like imagine you're you're into sketching and you yeah. do a sketch you're just doing it for fun you're not thinking I guess things are different now there's social media you could put it on social media and people would be like oh you know oh that's cool whatever but you're really just doing it for yourself I was honestly doing it for a purely for 
because I, I, you know, it's a creative, creative outlet. outlet, creative outlet, 100%. And so in its original incarnation, it was all black with white text, and it had like a paragraph on the front, and it was something like, uh, you know, when most people think of European ballers, they think of like these seven-foot stiffs, because this was before... This was in the very early days of, you know, Europeans making it. And they were always like some seven foot one guy called Zekov who couldn't move his feet at more than half a mile an hour. And I had seen with my own two eyes and had on video these amazing ballers in London, like with handles and doing dunks and stuff. And I was like, I want to show, well, I say I want to show the world. I was, you know, I didn't have ambitions that anyone was watching, but I was like, I just want to represent what's going on. So I was like, you know, we've got this scene in London. This is what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And I had a little bit of information about some of the basketball courts around, you know, some little player pages that are in its original incarnation were just like me and my friends down the court. But then as as I actually realized people were were, were logging on and, and, and it got more serious, then it became about the actual players on the scene. So what was the growth and involvement of it like obviously there, there must have been at some point when you were like oh this is more yeah. than just a creative outlet like it's getting traffic oh People there was there were i mean so the moment the the defining moment of when i realized that it was a thing was i'd uh, at work a website i'd been working on um we put a message board page on it and it wasn't again this was this must have still been a year 2000 so it wasn't you know, within a couple of years, message boards had got quite complex. This was literally just a page where you could post a message and it would list them chronologically. And I, so I stole the script that we'd used for the one at work and I put it on my site. And I thought, I'll go, you know, I'll check it tonight. Maybe there'll be three messages. Dude, I went back that night. There were like 40 messages. And I was like, oh my God, there's, pe there's people actually watching. And the people, it, it, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, nice... People were really engaging, you know, so many f comments from Americans like, I didn't realize y'all UK cats got down like that, you know, respect for New York, blah, blah, blah. Um, so a lot of that. But then also from day one, hate, you know, people like, oh, you know, y'all UK cats ain't shit, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then and then, you know, it quickly got into the little groups of, you know, Middlesbrough College talk, talking talking shit about Ealing tornadoes and whatever. And that that actually is where the the community side of it started to grow when when people you know various factions around london and the wider uk used to start getting into it on the message board and it was then that i realized there's people actually logging on they're really engaged and they're, they're quite passionate about what we're doing you know mo mostly positive but some people hating some people using it as a forum to talk to talk rubbish about each other and when that happened it motivated me to do it so much more because before that point, I'd literally, I've been doing it for myself. But once I got that, this is going to sound funny, I felt I had a duty. You know, people would be like, oh, are you, go, are you going to that next event? You know, when's the video going to be from that? And if I had previously been thinking, oh, that's long, like I might not go. I was like, I've got to, I have to go. Like, I owe it to, to the people, do you know what I mean? So, yeah, it was, it was when I put that message board on and there were just so many comments that was the moment where I where I realized it was a thing but even in that moment I didn't start thinking oh let's turn this into a business blah 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 I was just like well now now there's an audience so I'm not just doing it for me I'm doing it for them and it it, it just it might like I say it motivated me to do it more in terms of the timeline so so you registered the domain in 2000 May 2000 so you yeah. launched it in 2000 at what point did you sort of get that first version of the message board up like how soon after was that after launch I honestly couldn't tell you but it would have been 
within within six months. Okay, for so sure. it was quick. It was With, quick. It was uh, yeah. It was super quick. It was it was super quick. I I would say. Um, a couple of things helped us. I mean, firstly, just no one else was doing it. Yeah. But uh, how are people discovering you? Well, so one one thing that certainly helped. I mean, so we had started just within our little Southwest London community. I'm from Southwest London. People knew about it there, and it was just starting to spread by word of mouth. But I think the thing that really put us on the map, first of all, was um, my brother turned up to the Rough and Ready uh, trials in the year 2000. And your brother Stuart Tanner. My, for those bro- that my brother Stuart Tanner. And he um, he had a bit of a reputation, you know. People from again, you know, around Southwest London knew he had some handles and whatever. Uh, but I don't think the wider community did. Anyway, he turned up and he just tore it up. Like literally, people were running on the court. He was putting a ball through people's legs. People were going ape. Um, and uh, Rough and Ready gave us a shout out on on their website. They were like, you know, the, the the trials were great, blah blah blah. But you know, the man of the hour was Stuart Tanner. Oh, and he's down with this new website, streetball.co.uk. So I would say that was a key thing that then exposed us to a much um, bigger bigger audience. And then once once everyone else was logging on, you know, everybody then wanted to start being on those highlights themselves, so they they could they could show everybody else. So that's that's when it started gaining traction outside of our little group of friends. To actually, the basketball community started becoming a, a, aware of it. And you know, in terms of like, obviously, there's the online side, but in in terms of the offline side, you know, when when you were showing up to games. And you know, camera in hand. Was it to the point where you know people knew who you were? People then start putting on a show because they knew the camera was there and, and everything else. Yeah, definitely. That 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 evolved. Um, uh, one of the Westminster Warrior guys uh, who always used to be in a crowd. He, I, I, I live in Dubai now, and he was out in Dubai um, a few weeks ago. A guy called Luke, and uh, I, he used to be one of the crowd at Mobley Sports Centre up in like northwest. Uh, and you know we, we were out drinking and reminiscing about the old days. And he was like, "Greg, people used to act up so much when you were there with your camera, like like not just the players, like in the crowd as well." So they 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 definitely did, and it, it it was mad that I'd say I'd say by 2001, I'd say within a year or so, we could rock up to places as far north as you know Nottingham or whatever, and you could see people nudging them like that, that's streetball.co.uk, and it was. Um, it was quite mad, and and one of one of the the, the maddest and, and proudest moments for me was at one of the events. It got to a point where you know the guys would be signing autographs. You know, like people would be coming up like, oh yeah, yeah. and a kid came over to me with his ball, and he said, he said, are you Greg Tanner? And I said, yeah, and he said, can you can you can you sign my ball? And I thought that's so cute. Like I'm just I'm just the little guy with the camera, like you know the the the, the players are the stars, but. It, it really just made me think like wow this is this is just blown up to a point where where kids are coming and asking the guy that, that runs the website for their for their autograph when, when you talk about how big it did actually get I know that you know in the past we've spoken about sort of the numbers that you were doing um, what sort of numbers like in terms of visitors and stuff like what access to analytics did you have and kind of when you talk about the numbers the size of the audience what what, what sort of figures were you talking about so when it was when it was really blowing up at its height which i would say was probably 2003 4 um i to my knowledge like google analytics and that didn't exist at that point so you used to have to go to like webmaster tools websites and get like these free counters and stuff anyway i paid for a month in December 2003, because um, it was getting to a point where people were telling me to 
quit my job and, and, and do the website. And at that point, I didn't want to. I had, a, I had a stable job that I enjoyed. It would have been a huge risk. Um, but I was like, look, I just want to get the, the stats. And by this point, I had to change host about four or five times because the host couldn't deal with the bandwidth I was doing because of the video downloads. Um, all of these hosts that used to be like, you know, unlimited bandwidth. And then after two months, they'd be like, we got, I'm sorry, we, can, we, can't, we can't handle your traffic because no one was doing video like that. Um, so anyway, December 2003, I paid for like a month or two months. And uh, yeah, I was astounded. We were, we were doing like a million page impressions, 100,000 visitors. And this was 2003. This was before people were going on the internet with their phone. This was before social media. Um, so that really gave me an insight into, into sort of traffic we were doing. And the thing is, you you weren't just trailblazing in the UK, but globally, right? You had a global oh, audience. Yeah, yeah, massive, massive. Um, I, you know, probably sixty percent of our traffic came from outside the UK. Uh, you know, a lot of it from North America, America, and uh, USA and Canada. Uh, but then, yeah, loads, loads everywhere. And what was the state of the internet basketball scene back then? Like the other, was it, Hoops TV was around back then? Like so Hoops TV kind of started around the same time I did. And they, um, I remember reading, they were, they were run by Foot Action, that was the company behind Am1, um, uh, or, or Foot Locker. Foot Locker? Foot, anyway, one of those ones. And they, they, they had a $20 million startup funding. And I remember thinking, okay, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's a good website. I'm doing this on my J's with no money. Is that really twenty million dollars better than what I'm doing? No, I didn't. I certainly didn't think so. So, and that quickly folded. That 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 came and went pretty quickly. And then after a few years of, of Streetball getting big, some copycat ones started springing up here and there. Um, but yeah, no. So at, like at, at first, it was it was really the. What were the other sites that people were going to, like the independent sites? I mean, not the ESPNs of the world, but like yeah, the smaller yeah. independent sites that were sort of covering streetball oh, and basketball back then. I'm trying to think. There was one called Streetballers, AZ on the end, .net, that was run by some guys in Florida that used to be in contact with me a lot. Uh, Dime55, this other one that got set up by some guys. They were either in the States or Canada. Nautic got set up by a couple of film students in Canada. And they, they didn't really focus on sort of maintaining a website but they dropped two mixtapes and because a they had some really good players like some really flashy players but b they were they were film students and they had access to like full-on equipment and they knew what they were doing their mixtapes were like legendary and again i used to speak to them all the time uh there were a few guys in the uk streetballzone.tk run by some kid called josh up in like somewhere way up north or whatever um, yeah, various ones sprung up, and then I guess I guess probably the the main the main one that sprung up in the UK was Streetball Extreme. Uh, towards the end of just as I was sort of tailing out of um, the scene, they sort of came on and had had a had a little shine for for a quick minute. How much do you think? Well, I mean, obviously the era that you were in was so perfectly timed because that was the height of Streetball, right? Yeah. Um, you know, how much do you think that played into it? And, you know, I guess for people that, maybe the younger people that, that weren't around during that era, how massive was Streetball as a culture? It was big. I mean, I would say even before the M1 mixtape, we were in to handles because <clears throat> that was the handles era. You know, Iverson and Marbury got drafted in 96. So I was, I was 18. And I remember, um, 
you know, you couldn't really watch Georgetown games or whatever on TV, but there was this uh, video VHS service called Pontel based somewhere in Europe, like the Netherlands or something. And you could order NCAA and uh, NBA games. <clears throat> and uh, a friend of mine used to order the Georgetown games. And so we were watching, I, we'd heard, we'd just heard. And again, this wasn't through the internet. It was just word of mouth. We'd somehow heard. There was this guy called Alan Iverson at Georgetown and he had these amazing moves. So we used to, we used to watch all of that. So we got into handles then. And um, I had friends that like perfected that crossover. Like shout out to Kenny Alakatan and Davu Fom. Like people were perfecting the crossover. And and you know I would I would I would lie in bed at night dreaming of doing a crossover. So we were on the handles thing. But then the M1 mixtape came out in '99, um, and that probably was the the motivation probably for me to start streetball.co.uk because I was effectively kind of doing a UK version of, of, of the M1 mixtape. And it's funny, when I first when I first watched the M1 mixtape, I didn't really like it. It was so short, it was so grainy. I, I wasn't really feeling it, but what it did remind me of was all the skateboard videos I used to watch when I was a little bit younger because skateboarding was always my thing. And it was basically the same thing, highlights uh, of flashy stuff cut to, to music. It was, it was a very similar thing. But after a few views of uh, M1 Mixtape 1 and skipped to my loo and everything, I, I started to get it and I was like, this is cool. And then other people started doing it. And then, you know, for, for, for your younger viewers that don't know, it went from legitimate, like, ballers who were flashy to, you know, by the time M1 Mixtape 3 came out in 2001, you know, this guy Hot Sauce came along. And I'm not gonna lie, like, the first few times we watched that, we were running around the house screaming. Like literally, he was doing things no one had even thought about. And we were running around the house screaming. But I think as we got into that era, it started getting in a, a little bit ridiculous, like just blatant carries, blatant double dribbles. And that, that side of things I wasn't really on. But the earlier stuff definitely in, inspired the, the, the start of streetball.co.uk. How much, you know, I still get blowback now for posting too many dunks and crossovers and not focusing on more fundamentals and stuff. You know, I have no doubt that was the same thing back then. Like, how much blowback were you getting from the establishment or sort of, you know, fundamental people that were like, well, you're, you know, you're ruining the game, you're providing the wrong things? Well, I didn't, I didn't really deal, certainly, certainly for the first four, five years. I didn't deal with the establishment. I didn't care. I didn't, I, I didn't care for, for what was then NBL. I didn't care about the BBL. I didn't care about the establishment. Uh, I was just covering what was going on on the courts, uh, what was going on in the, the summer events, and you know what was happening on on the streets. And I think that's why people liked it so much. You know, if I'd been covering, I mean, I did occasionally, you know, cover B NBL games or whatever, but that's not exciting to a foreign audience. You know, guys in America aren't going to log on for that, but they're going to log on to see these guys in Europe like throwing alley oops and like dunking on people. Um, but in terms of blowback from the establishment, yeah, I certainly heard um, that some of the biggest names, you know, the 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 the, the big coaches uh, were telling their players, you know, don't 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 watch that bullshit. Basically, no one ever really said it directly to me. Um, well, people used to put it on the message boards, like, oh, you know, you're not fundamental, blah 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 blah. Uh, but but I was told by players that coaches had said, don't worry about what streetwater.co.uk is doing for sure. And what about um, blowback from players that were on the wrong side of highlights? Um, yeah, there were there were times where I was threatened not to put things up, and there were times where I didn't put things up, you know, for fear of reprisal. Uh, I remember there was one event though up in Durham where everybody had 
if you competed, everyone had signed a waiver, and that included you you waived the right to be filmed. And one of the guys on our team, a guy called Darren Clark, who's like as tall as me, windmilled on this guy in a game. And he found my email. He was like, like I'm going to sue you if you put it up, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, mate, if you played in, if you played in that thing, you had to sign a waiver, sorry. But then I remember, I remember, I'm not, I'm not going to say any names, but there was one guy from London that got crossed and fell horribly. I wasn't there, but someone sent me the clip. Um, I'm not sure how they would have sent it. I don't know if they emailed it or whatever. And everyone in 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 that community was talking about it, and they were like, "Greg's gonna put it online." And he told me, "He was like, bro, if you put that online, you're giving me money, or or you're getting banged." And I just couldn't be, I, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the drama. So yeah, there were there were there were there were things that I didn't I didn't put online for sure. And in terms of the wider sort of English basketball scene, uh, kind of what was going on with the game at that point? Um, that kind of I don't know things that you played on or, or played a role in, kind of the the rise and growth of Streetball UK what like establishment things were going on i just on. mean the, just the general state of the game like the pro oh. league like na- national league like um you know obviously the fact that streetball culture was a bigger thing yeah. uh i almost think that people at that time were more interested in learning moves than they were in trying to sign a pro contract in yeah. some ways you know i i the scene was very different so i mean i haven't got a lot to say about what the bbl what the nbl was doing at the time because i, I wasn't really focused on it but in terms of the the streetball scene and the summer basketball scene, it was vibrant. It was vibrant. And there's actually so much we could discuss here because it got to a point where I was putting on an event. Uh, Roger and Hosanna were doing ballers evenings every Thursday. That was a weekly thing that everyone went to. Summer league, stroke pro-am. They started doing an event at Brighton. I helped do some events in Brighton. You had, I mean, Rough and Ready were kind of... um, I think the last one they did was 2003 and they'd taken 2002 off. So they were kind of just at the tail end of, of, yeah. of their existence. But they were still players on the scene. You had Namo, who, who runs Midnight Madness. Uh, you know, he started Midnight Madness in 99. This was before it got taken to like the, the big level when Nike fully backed it in 2005. But Namo was still doing events. Um, and there, you know, there was animosity in the scene. There was beef in the scene, 100%. And it got to a point... Uh, everybody wanted the prime weekends in the summer to do their, their events. And it got to a point where there was so much infighting and drama that Steve Alexander, who who was the, 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 the Basketball England London rep, basically used to call a meeting in January at South Bank University where we'd all come in this room. And, you know, some people hated me, like proper hated me. Um... And we try and you know try and work out dates and 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 do so in a in a manner that wasn't going to cause too much drama. But it was funny. There were there were these 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 different factions that that didn't get on and had problems with each other for various reasons. But in terms of what that for for, for the for the community, it was thriving. Yeah. Like I say, you know, every Thursday, Crystal Palace three, and then eventually I think it became four courts where you'd, you'd go from kids to, to, to guys back from NCAA scholarships, NBA, NBA, occasionally NBA actually, occasionally NBA players. So that would be a regular thing. You'd have the pro-am that you know, everyone would be looking to, to get involved in. I was doing events in Brighton. Roger started doing events in Brighton. Namo was putting on things. Rough and ready were, 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 were here and there. Um, so there was just so much going on. And, and that's before you start factoring in these random three and threes, you know, out in, in, in the country or whatever that we used to get invited to and, and go and play them. 
Um, now, I've not really been on the bar, you know, the UK basketball scene for a few years now. But as far as I can tell, that that kind of summer of just wall-to-wall hoops and events doesn't appear to exist anymore. Yeah. yeah. Why? Why do you think it? Why do you think it has wound down? Uh, so I would say partly. It, so as you referred to in the streetball era, it was the thing. <clears throat> you know, it was cool. It was all about. It, it, it being outdoors highlights you know the 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 vibe the culture uh part of it but as you know all fads come and go and i think as it as it started fading out and becoming a little bit too mad and people doing too many tricks what then became the next wave was it's not about going to these three on threes it's about you know what 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 pro scouting camp in Europe are you getting invited to? Or if you're looking at the States, you know, are you playing in the ABCD camp? Or, you know, what pro teams are looking at you? What academies in Europe are looking at you? And people then looked down on these guys just in the street working on their crossover or their 360. So it really it really went from being that's the shit to nah, unless you're unless basketball's taking you somewhere, unless you're getting paid for it, then it's a waste of time. So the and and, and that that was there were many reasons why I kind of got out of doing it, but it was partly, you know, the wave had been and gone. Do you think that, um, I think one of the other things that always astounds me when people talk about that kind of era is just the amount of commercial interest there was, like the amount of partners uh, of people that just, you know, are not involved with the game at all anymore. When you talk about Streetball at Code UK, uh, sort of directly, were you working with a lot of brands? Did you find there were a lot of brands sniffing around with money? Yeah, yeah, um, at, at various points. So... I would say once I got to about 2002, then I had the likes of Nike start getting involved. Um, and there were various years where, you know, I got paid thousands by, by brands. You know, I remember there was there was one campaign in 2005. Um, uh, Reebok were doing a Iverson campaign. They paid us like seven grand for a month to take, you know, for a site takeover. Um, you know, Nike used to pay me when, when, when Midnight Madness, when Nike really got behind Midnight Madness and, uh, and, you know, you went up and down the country and, and it became a, the biggest thing f- for a few years in, in, in summer basketball, you know, Nike were paying me to, to film those events, put the clips up to the point where by that point, by that point I had quit my job. I quit my job in 2004 to, to kind of juggle being a freelance news producer with all this basketball stuff because the basketball stuff was blowing up so much. And plus I moved to a job that I really wasn't feeling. So I gave it six months, left it, and it was the sing- single best decision uh, I ever made. So I was, I was, you know, um, juggling, juggling the, these two things. But yeah, you know, here and there, the, the problem was, was it was only ever here or there. It'd be like one month, bang, you know, Nike or, or, or Reebok or, or whatever. Um, but what you would make every month from your little Google ads or your little other things here and there, would be enough to pay the bills and maybe finance a, a trip, take take the guys to a tournament in Leeds or whatever. But I couldn't I couldn't live off it. It was never like a money spinner. But for sure there there were there were people putting money in here and there. And again, you know, going back to when you were talking to Roger the other day, I mean he did a a, a great job. You know, he had PlayStation backing him for ages, he had the RAF backing him. Uh he he brought in um a lot of partners. So Again, I don't really. I know you do your event, and yeah. obviously, you know you 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 bring in bring in partners. But you, 
yours yours is just kind of one event whereas back then there was a whole there was a summer i i used to put a, a schedule on 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 the website of like july this this is august this this is and um every single weekend there'd be there'd be stuff going on and and a lot of it sponsored when you talk about sort of balancing your regular job with with streetwater code uk how were you doing it with the two and what kind of hours were you putting in so i was lucky so I, i'm a television news producer and i was lucky in so much as i had um because i'd worked in the industry for about five years by the time i quit i knew people that had gone to sky news itv news and whatever uh, and they knew i was good at what i did so i would i would be offered you know if i wanted to i could work every single day basically so i would effectively work full full time doing the news thing and then when the summer came along and i knew where events were or i knew that i was going to get x amount of money from nike i'd really scale back the amount of work that i said yes to so again it would have i know i know you know hoops fix for you is 100% your grind and i can't even imagine how tough that must be but i was lucky in so much as i had i had a really good fallback i had a really good like bread and butter plan that was the news producing producing and then as and when i knew basketball things were coming up i would just reduce that to to leave myself more open for that but i will admit there there a lot a lot of times basketball things would crop up last minute so i'd have to either basically work a whole day there were days where i did a 10 hour shift at sky news and then drove to birmingham and stayed up all night filming midnight madness and then you know probably nearly died driving home um, <laughs> but you know i was i was i was putting in putting in the grind the, the the funniest one was when kobe by this point actually i'd stopped doing streetball.co.uk but when kobe and the lakers came over in 2009 and nike called me a few days before probably five or six days before and we're like great we're doing a footlocker event can you interview kobe in front of all these guys and i literally turned around to the per- i was meant to be working that weekend at sky and i literally turned around to the person that was uh, in charge of weekends and i was like i'm not even going to make an excuse i'm not coming in this weekend <laughs> i'm interviewing kobe bryant sorry mate um so yeah so I, I i was in a fortunate position that i had this regular source of income that i could rely on and scale up or scale back depending on what basketball things came along and there were times you know 2006 7 uh, I you know went away for six months to to produce a, a weekly basketball show that was my full-time job for six or seven months uh, you know some summers I'd take two months off because between what Nike were paying me and what you know other other people were putting in for for other things I could afford not to do the day job for a couple of months so I, I was very lucky in so much as I had flexibility basically did you ever end up having to take money to do campaigns that you didn't necessarily want to do and you didn't feel representative of the brand or could you kind of stay away from that no i don't think so um i don't big campaigns we did were for iverson um you know with nike obviously i i was helping them promote midnight madness and i was fully behind that i did some of the bron james campaigns for them uh, battlegrounds they did they did a big battlegrounds push in 2004 i think it was i was fully behind that nike freestyle in 2001 again looking back on it now it's kind of played out now but at the time it was it was hot yeah. and it was cool i never i never really i don't feel like i ever sold out yeah. uh, at any point but then i i didn't get any offers that would have that would have been like a sellout thing pretty much everyone that came to me because my bars my streetball.co.uk was so niche we were you know they call it a vertical in in you know advertising we were so niche that anyone coming to us was really trying to target the urban basketball audience 
so they weren't going to come to me with bullshit because they knew that wouldn't fly with that with that audience so yeah. I, I was fortunate in so much as pretty much every every campaign every big campaign that came along i was i was completely you know clear in my conscience with it when you talk about players um you know how did that sort of part of it come about because for me growing up my friends obviously you know you're your Teos and Leon Bernard and Stuart Tanners and you know Pierre and whoever else they were like our sort of you know mini celebrities or whatever that we'd look up to and be like oh, do you see what they did and they did this and they did that like you know you said that it started with your friends mm. and obviously at that you know it kind of it branched out you had like sort of junior street with the UK guys and mm. you were taking teams and taking them to tournaments and stuff kind of what was the evolution of um, sort of the selection of the players and sort of putting together like I guess faces of street with the UK well in the early days as we started getting known you know i knew uh like pierre henry fontaine and ryan cadogan uh, and those guys philip perry because they played at the uh chessington wildcats that was like our local thing um, you know my brother played on the team so i got to kind of know them and obviously they were like highlights every week then i'd go and watch other teams here and there uh i think in 2001 is when i started going to north london to watch um I can't remember the name of the team that Taylor was playing on, but I'd seen him at a few summer events, like just dunking on everyone. And I was like, I've got to go and see this guy more regularly. And then, you know, I got to, you know, obviously he's in the clips and he, we, we got to know each other and he was then on board. So, you know, when, when an event came up, he'd be the first person I'd text or find. I'd be like, there's this event. Do you want to come? Like I'm, I'm paying, like, I wouldn't, I, I wasn't paying him a fee, but I'd be like, you know, accommodations on me, I'll drive, whatever. Um, so yeah, just, just by getting out to events, but then because Streetball was getting known and people would see me at all these things and know I was the guy that, w that, that was doing it, I just developed uh, relationships with the players and the players were keen to be on it. You know, it, 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 it really, it really got to a point where people wanted to be on there. So I didn't have to convince them like, oh, do you want to come and play for my team? Uh, they, they, they were on it cause they, they wanted, they wanted to, to be in the clips and being talked about. And when you talk about the the different tournaments that you were traveling to, like obviously there were some smaller ones, you're going down like all sorts of random places <laughs> in the countryside and stuff. Were you always winning or were you just getting highlights coming out? Like kind of, because that was the thing is you had a mix of, yeah, they were flashy, but actually they were legit basketball players as well, right? So when we first started, and it, it, this speaks to the, to the, to the evolution of, of my mindset and also the way basketball went. When we first started, I was just like highlights, highlights, highlights. I don't care if we win, like, which I know sounds terrible, but all people were logging on because they wanted to see an alley-oop, they wanted to see a reverse, they wanted to see a crossover. So I remember we got invited to the Hosanna Pro-Am in, I think it was 2000, I think it was like within a few months of me starting the website. And we went up against a team that had uh, Rico Alderson, who was one of the most feared players in the BBL at the time, Rob Sargent, who was like one of the top uh, UK guys. Uh, Jason Seaman, who was like one of the big um, American BBL guys, and they thrashed us. Um, and so I think in the in the beginning we were just like these upstarts who just had, you know, some some guys who could dunk, some guys who had handle, and we were kind of disregarded. And again, I think you know Roger was speaking to that in your in your podcast the other week. We came out of nowhere, and we we weren't steeped in the basketball history that that that. Hosanna was or the uh, Rough and Ready was um, but we were providing a product that, that people like. people loved these highlights but then as as we as we evolved I realized okay if we want to be taken seriously we got to win so I would try to put together teams of guys who who could do both so 
Teo could dunk on everyone, but he could he, he could get to the rim and score, and you know he, he could be a streaky shooter as well. Then you know you'd think right, I need a big man. Um, you know I need a guard, it, and it became, you know, we then started going to those tournaments to win, and it, and again a funny a funny part of the evolution was. In the early years, we used to turn up and everyone would be rooting for us because they loved street ball and we were the underdogs and we were the new thing. But after three or four years of winning everything, we turn up and they would root for, the, for, for anyone against us because it's like, oh, no, street ball are going to come and win again. And I think a lot of people thought um, that we were like really arrogant and stuff. It, it's funny. I actually so many times in the street ball years like met people and they'd be like, you're really safe, actually. I thought you were going to be a dick. And I don't know why. Maybe that's just because of the way we were coming off. Like, oh, you know, we got all these highlights. We won this thing, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, yeah, we, we we went from being the underdog, the, the people that got beaten, to the the winners. Everyone liked us because we were new. And then you go past the tipping point and you, you win everything. So the people want the new underdog. Yeah, always. Yeah. When you talk about sort of peak... Streetball.co.uk moments, mm. um, specifically not not things that you've done personally, obviously afterwards, but actual Streetball.co.uk moments. Um, you know, there was obviously crazy stuff that you were involved with. You know, over the years, and I, I remember you going abroad to different tournaments and stuff, and kind of uh, yeah. What are your some of your favourite memories of of the website and experiences that that you had with the guys, um, or that you had filming? You know, doing your own thing. Yeah. Well, I would say so. I would say what you know, one one moment that stands out was like I say when I put the message board on there, and I realised there was an audience. In terms of like some of the the highlights, the first big event that that happened down in Brighton um, in two thousand and two to four and four was amazing. This guy that worked for a record label down there called George hit me up, and he was like. Um, He'd seen that, you know, we, we used to go down there, bring some guys, you know, scrimmage, play, get some highlights, go home, put up a, put up a video. He was like, I want, I've got a budget. I want to do uh, a tournament. So I helped him out. And anyway, the weather was perfect. Um, so, so many people, you know, you know Brighton, and I'm sure a lot of your viewers do. But on a, on a nice day, if there's an event going on at the court, passing traffic stops then people stop to see what the other people are looking at. And it's not just on the court level, you know, up on the up on the street level, people start looking down. So there must have been, you know, a few hundred people around this court at any given point. The weather was amazing. The guys were getting highlights. But the highlight that stands out was we ended up, I think it was the finals. We, we beat a team that had a bunch of BBL guys, like Randy Duck, who was like one of the, the top BBL guys. We beat them. Shout out to Chris Jeremiah, who scored like seven in a row and went ham. <laughs> and then I think it was the finals. We ended up playing the, the local Brighton team with Bud Johnson, uh, this French guy called Julian, and like all, all their guys. So obviously, although we were still in the early days of streetball, everybody wanted uh, the Brighton guys. And the highlight that stands out for me, and anyone of a certain age will remember it, was it was near the end of the game and I was under the hoop I was filming under the hoop that we were scoring on and Teo stole the ball I think and he just comes on a fast break and I can see him and Julian this French guy who had crazy hops I can see him converging and you just hear me saying flush that shit flush that shit bang like he packed it on him so hard and the thing that made it so brilliant was Julian who went to block it ended up hanging on the rim and everyone just rushed him like got in his face tail was screaming everyone was going mad that so in in terms of like highlights that stand out that was one um i would say the first street all-star game that i did even though the crowd wasn't huge there was maybe 300 people 
um, it was it went beyond my expectations of highlights, and I think everybody else's. Like I put together so many people um, who, ha- who who I knew were going to bring highlights, but it was just on another another level. There were just so many amazing things, and like Chidi, one of our big guys, he literally did the elbow dunk in a game. This was this was two thousand and two, right? People weren't doing that stuff back then. And um, people came from abroad for, for that game. And I, I'll never forget one email uh, from a kid, I think in, in Germany or France or something. And uh, he said, that was the best day of my life. Uh, so, you know, that day and then getting that email, um, uh, you know, was ov- were obviously highlights. Um, I went abroad for things. Like I remember going to K54 for the first time in 2006. I'm going to go out there and say, it was me that brought it to the UK's attention because it was it, like no one really knew about it before that. But I, I went out and it, like just the hype. And this was before it really, really got big and like moved to buy the, the Eiffel Tower and everything. This was when it was still in the hood. Um, but that was amazing, like the vibe and, and, and everything and being being abroad. Um, so, yeah, I mean. There's, there's, there's and, and then even like the nights out, you know, when you go to the, you go to a five on five in Leeds and, you know, with like seven players and then you all go out that night and um, I, some of the, the, the days down in Plymouth, you know, I knew a lot of guys that used to go to Marjons, the, uh, the, the university down there and, you know, we had some big nights out in Plymouth. So, yeah, from the on-court stuff to the off-court stuff for a good five years, half a decade, you know, that, that was kind of my life. And yeah, I like I got to do some amazing things. You mentioned it there. <clears throat> I didn't want to talk about the events and obviously Street All Stars. So uh, how many years? How many years did that end up running? Um, what year did it first run? And kind of yeah, what was your idea behind doing it? So it's I first did it in two thousand two. So by that point, we'd become established enough that everyone knew us. I knew all the players. I'd been thinking about doing a event, and then uh, it it started. It came out on the grapevine that Rough and Ready wasn't going to be on that year. So, not for one minute was I thinking I was going to put on a, 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 an alternative to Rough and Ready. But I did think there's room for some sort of like just like exhibition thing. Um, so that that was the reason why I started it, and it was just and that game literally was just about highlights. It, it it didn't matter who won, honestly, and that's what the people were coming for. They were coming to see the guys that they'd seen in all the videos and, and doing it live in the flesh. So I did it, um, I think I did, I think I did five. The third one was the biggest, 2004 was the biggest. Like it was absolutely packed. Um, and again, it was a great one. There were mad highlights, like court getting rushed so many times. But then the next year, that was the fourth one, um, the seven, seven bombings happened. And so many of the kids that used to come to my events were from out of town like they used to travel from up north or out in the country and even abroad and they were young as well it, you know it was quite a young audience I mean I myself in 2005 turned 27 but I would say most of the kids coming to the event were probably like 16 to 20 and when 7-7 happened and then 21-7 a couple of weeks later and then they shot John Charles de Menezes at Stockwell Everyone outside of London thought that London was literally being bombed every day. So the crowd was much smaller that fourth year. And it's because so many people didn't come from out of town. And then I think I did two more after that. But 2006 was my last one because 2007, well, A, I was kind of falling out of love with it. B, I was thinking I've got to 
focus on my career and 2007 I met a girl that I ended up getting very serious with and that was like <laughs> the final nail in the coffin for streetball.co.uk so yeah it, it ran basically for like the, the website I would say for seven years but it was that first five that it was like everything it was all consuming did you ticket the event was it a profitable thing or I loosely ticketed it loosely <laughs> you know I mean I'm sure you know what it's like like so many people just want to get in for free and I'm just uh, you know I, I wasn't doing it for as, as, a, as a money spinner at all and it didn't cost that much money I mean it cost less you know in all honesty it cost less than a thousand pounds to put it on I it was just a little sports hall I wasn't doing it at Brixton Rec like you with bleachers and floor prints and, and everything. Yeah. I got given free kit by AM1 or K1X. I got a good you know, discount rate, 200 quid for the, for the, for the gym for the day. Um, paid the, the sound man and the DJ 200. You know, it, it really wasn't that expensive. So I wasn't, I didn't really care if people were getting in for free. All I cared about was it looking rammed um, because obviously, you know, the, if you go back and watch the videos of the third one, it was so random. People were so hyped and people kept coming on the court that I didn't care if, if, if we were taking a loss on the, on the event because I knew that the, the, the footage was going to you know, drive so much interest. And when you talk about, like, do you have... Uh, so, again, this was, this was pre-YouTube. Do you know, like, your biggest grossing video in terms of views and stuff? Like, is there any that, that stick out? You know, the one, one of the pages that I really remember is you had a page where you broke down... Iverson's crossover on yeah. Jordan. You broke down the Sham God as the well. Sham God, you see, I'm gonna, I, 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 I'm gonna sound mad arrogant, but I honestly think I brought the Sham God really to the world's attention. Like people knew he was doing it. Uh, niche, you know, niche people. When he was at Providence, and again, my, my boy Perry used to order his Pontel tapes, and we used to put the VHS in and frame by frame, like throw it out, pull it back. Like I'd never, I never really got it, but you know, other, other, other people did. But it was one of the things that I put on um, the website. And yeah. I used to have so many, I used to get hundreds of emails a week, honestly. Like, where did you get that sham going? I, I've never seen that, how do you do that? And so now I, f I find it funny that in the last few years, it's, like, it's kind of had a, res a resurgence. I, there was a documentary about him like a year or two ago. Yeah. And I was honestly sitting there thinking, you know, would the sham god be quite as well known if what the, for five years or so was the most popular streetball website in Europe and possibly even in the world hadn't been like talking about it so much? I do genuinely wonder that. Maybe yeah. maybe I'm trying to take too much credit, but I genuinely think like I brought that to a lot of people's attention yeah. that, that that never watched those Providence games, never would have seen it if yeah. they hadn't seen it on on street. Yeah, Board. I mean, I 100% I had never heard of it or seen it until I saw it on your website, and then of course then you go out in the playground and you're trying to do it, and you're watching back the clip, and you're just like, I mean, yeah, there was there was so much stuff that um that that had an impact on kind of the things that I would do. I I remember <clears throat> you had one clip. I think it was with Stuart and he it was just on a playground against just one guy mm. just a one-on-one -on -one and he kind of went like that and then round the players back and then span around oh yeah oh no I, I think I think that was someone else that, that, that did that move a guy called Elliot that, that yeah, did that move that one yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and I remember then I, I, I called a friend over and I was like oh, let's go one-on-one -on -one or whatever and and I did it on him, and he was just like, "What the hell did you just do?" And I just felt like the most accomplished basketball player ever. You know, I'd, all my life goals were met. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. The footage was just was just unreal. Do you have like all the tapes still? The archive, like, where is it? Because you know, obviously, you can 
obviously ahead of this podcast, I, I Googled and, and sort of tried to dig up some stuff. And there's not that much. Uh, there's stuff on YouTube, obviously, mm. which people have put, put up mixtapes, but I know that it's not all of it. Um, right. But yeah, like, do you have it anywhere on hard drives and stuff? I think I do. I, I think I've probably got a lot of it. I, I have hard drives like under my bed in Dubai that I don't actually have cables to, <laughs> to connect. And every now and then someone will ask me for some footage and I think, oh, I must go and get that cable. But then for one reason or another, I don't. The tapes, you know what? I th- so much of it is on the hard drive, hard drives, plural. Um, but in terms of the tapes, I think when I moved, I think when I left the UK, I think I might have thrown them out. Really? I think I might have made that decision because they're certainly not, they're certainly not with me in Dubai. So yeah, some of those those tapes might have been lost forever. Because one of the things the Google search does bring up is like, um, is like your free serve account. Which is like there's like an archive version of the site oh, right. okay. on there. Like it's one of the early, early sites. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it had links to videos on there, and I clicked on, but none of them worked. So I right. assume that the hard files are. Yeah, I mean, there, I'll, I'll send you some of the the old ones. You can. Do you know the website archive.org? Yeah. So if you use that, you can look at snapshots of it in time, and some, some somehow somehow yeah. some of those links to the AVIs and MPEGs yeah. work somehow. Yeah. Um. So yeah, some of the like the old two thousand two thousand one clips are are still there set up a youtube channel just dedicated to all that to all that <laughs> archive i think yeah people so many people were uh, yeah would love to see it there's definitely because there's there's one in, there's, there was one brighton clip that i've always tried to find and i can never find it which i remember so clearly from when i was when i was young like it was a mixtape down in brighton um but yeah there was just just so many moments uh in terms of like the players like who who are sort of the the bigger names that stick out to you and the ones that you've profiled um, and I guess even now, like it must be quite sort of nice for you because there's a lot of guys that you profiled when they were young, Matthew Bryan and Manning, yeah. that are now you know playing professionally, earning a lot of money representing Great Britain, or you know playing in the BBL now or wherever else. Um, yeah, like kind of who are the names that that stick out for you? Well, yeah, in terms of people that have made it, you know, Matthew was one. I remember him when he was. 13 at Crystal Palace on on the sideline. I mean, he was always tall, but he was still he was too young to 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 really play with the big boys. But very quickly, you know, by the time he was 14, 15, he was he was playing with the main guys. And then you know he obviously he obviously you know blew up. You know he was with Isaiah Thomas at, at, at Washington, and and he's played all around the world now. So that was quite mad seeing him. And you know he used to play for our junior teams. Um, Justin Robinson as well. You know he used to play for our junior teams. And you look at him, MVP of the the BBL and guys are killing it but I, w- I would say like the main faces of the site were were older guys guys kind of my age or a little bit younger so your tail or elijah's your leon bernard's uh pierre's younger than me but you know pierre was one of the guys ryan was one of the guys um i'm trying to think you know jimmy from the crowd how can i forget jimmy from the crowd so jimmy was you know one of us kingston boys that um that just came out the crowd one day and did a move in the game and then that was it he was part of our crew and he's still you know, one of my best friends to this day um and and the, you know those those guys you know i guess didn't you know make it fully professionally but they did lots of stuff with basketball they you know did a lot of jobs for photo shoots and stuff you know like when 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 FIBA decided eight years ago or so that they wanted to push three on three you know they called me and you know we all those guys got paid to do the original photo shoot promoting FIBA three on three so although although a lot of the guys didn't necessarily make it professionally you know they made some money out of the the, the streetball gigs for sure how big of a role do you think your brother played uh as Stuart Tanner you know I think he for me 
obviously had the reputation and was featured in a lot of magazines. And there was a whole Devin Harris thing, which was, was that was actually post Street World UK, wasn't it? Yeah, that yeah. was that was two thousand eight. Yeah. Two thousand eight. Um, but yeah, like how much of a role do you think he played in the in the whole thing? Yeah, I mean he played a. a huge role he in the, in the earliest incarnations <clears throat> most of, of of the website most of the best little highlights i had were of, were of him so he he was um certainly at first like the the guy on there that, yeah. that everybody uh, that everybody watched and yeah the fact 100 percent. so many people used to say you know the fact he was this white boy from the suburbs definitely made it stick out more do you know what i mean like you know it, it made it, it it added a sort of extra layer to it so yeah 100 percent. you know in the early days he was the focus and like i say when he when he um when he tore up the rough and ready trials in 2000 and they gave him and us the shout out that really helped put us on the map but stuart sort of fairly early ish on sort of became less involved and didn't 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 really want to be involved for you know, for one reason or another but certainly early on he was he was the face and the star yeah and so when you ended up uh kind of winding it down like was there a definitive point where it's like okay i'm not doing this anymore or was it just slowly gradually over time you started losing interest like what, what were the reasons behind it everyone you know i always see anytime you talk about it on facebook or whatever there's just all these comments bring it back bring it back yeah. Like, um yeah wh- wh- why did you why did you sort of bring it bring it to a close okay right multiple reasons so one as we've discussed i felt the whole street ball vibe had, had been and gone you know jump the shark to you to use the phrase um that wave had been and gone and i felt i'd taken it as far as i wanted to if i had been more business minded about it i maybe could have made it more profitable maybe could have turned it into more of a job but I wasn't, I was never doing it for the money. It got to a point where, yes, I was trying to get some money out of it because it was, it was part of the way I earned my living. But it was, it was, you know, partly that I was like, right, I've taken it about as far as I can. Um, (laughs) This will make you laugh. I never, I I didn't start drinking until I was 27. (laughs) So in all the early days of streetball.co.uk, I was never out. I wasn't at the pub. I wasn't at the club. I wasn't going out out. I was filming and I was staying up late editing videos. I uh, I began drinking, funnily enough, on a streetball trip. Um, <laughs> me, Teo, and Pierre went over to Munich in the summer of 2005. We were the guests of K1X, this big um, German sports brand uh, who, who are pretty huge in Europe, actually. And they paid for everything. You know, they put us up. And the night we got there, or the second night we were there, they took us to uh, this club, P1. It's like, you know, P1. It's like the number one club in, uh, in Munich. And they were pouring a vodka... And I was like, no, no, no. And they basically peer pressured me into drinking. And I just had the most amazing time. And I thought, why have I not been doing this all my life? <laughs> so in all seriousness, in all the early years of doing a website, I didn't drink. And I focused everything on on, on streetwall.co.uk. But once I started drinking, I started going out. I was going to games less. I was less inclined to stay up all night on my computer. So that was a factor. Um, I felt I needed to focus more on my actual career career. So that was a factor. And then, um, yeah, in, in, in 2007, I met a, a girl who I ended up spending like four years with. Um, and my previous girlfriend had just got ignored. You know, I lived with her for two years and I, you know, she, sorry, Amanda, but she, <laughs> she basically got ignored because I was 24 seven doing street ball. But then once I got, once I got with this, uh, this girl Taz, I, I was like, right, I want to spend my time with her. 
and getting pissed. Um, so, so, so Street will gradually took a bit of a back seat. And actually, what happened was um, around that time, I, uh, I for seven months full time, I worked on a, a project for UK TV, making a weekly basketball show, primarily focused around the Euroleague because they got the rights to the Euro Euroleague. And through that, I met a guy. He was running the commercial side of it for UK TV. And I said, look, I'm going to stop doing streetball. And he thought that would have been such a waste. So he was like, well, why don't we turn it into like a more general, wider basketball website where we can still write about stuff and whatever, but you, you don't have to be going to games every week. So so we, we ended up, I ended up directing streetball.co.uk to a very similar looking website called Basketball 24-7. Um, but my heart was never really in that. By by, you know, I did streetball because it was cool and it was like um, it was uh, its peak a movement. It really was like kind of a, a a movement. Just doing a website writing about what's going on in the NBA that week. I wasn't I wasn't on it. Wasn't about it. So I I just yeah I just I I phased out of that. But still, plenty of basketball gigs came along after that. But they weren't like necessarily website related you know I, w I worked at the olympics i did various things for yeah. nike so i still did a lot of basketball stuff but in t in terms of running a basketball website basically phased it out in 2007 i would say because there was there was one point in like 2010 2011 where you talked about you were going to bring it back yeah there was a little landing page went up saying coming yeah. soon and it well i ended up um I mean, I'm starting to sound like an alcoholic, but I ended up I ended up going for a drink with a guy, uh, James Fenimore, big fan, who's done quite a lot of things in basketball, and uh, we were reminiscing about the days. And he was like, "Look, we can bring it back." And you know, he 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 has experience of doing events, and he's got you know backing behind him. And for a minute, you know, I was I was quite serious. I was like, you know what, we we could do this, but for one reason or another, I was like, I. I just I I wouldn't have been able to give it the time or the passion that I had before really uh and I felt that I would do it a disservice. I didn't want to bring it back half fast. Uh if you get me. Do you have any regrets about the Street World UK days? Like if you were to go back and replay it, is there anything that you would do differently? Is there, you know, is there any part of you you said you, you weren't very commercially minded about it? Do you think oh, if I'd gone hard I could have made it a thing and it could be my full-time thing like uh, you're right. If I, I definitely think if I had been more business-minded about it, I probably could have made it a thing. But do I regret not doing that? No, because I've always enjoyed my what was kind of side career and now it's my, my full-time career and, you know, I've, I've done I've done well for it. Um, so I don't really regret it. Like, I know if a few other people, and I'm not including you in this, but I, I've, I've known a few other people that have, tried, that have done a, a basketball thing and they don't necessarily have, like, a good career that they can fall back on so they put everything into trying try, trying trying to make that a thing whereas because I was fortunate enough to have this this other career I never had whilst I had the passion and the drive to do it for the people and for the content I wasn't like I need to pay my bills I've got I've got to I've got to hustle and, and and get on it so could I have done it differently yes 100% do I regret not doing it differently I don't I don't think so I don't think so the other thing, you know, I did want to talk about some of the stuff you've done since Street World Credit UK. It's, um, you know, that's the one that everyone always talks about and you kind of, you get all the credit for. But to me, you know, when I go through your CV or whatever and kind of look at the other things that you've done since since then, it's almost equally as impressive, um, especially for someone that's in the same space and, and everything else. So so I guess uh, in terms of some of the other gigs that you have done, the obvious one is London 2012 Olympics. Mm. Um, 
kind of what was your involvement with the Olympics and kind of how do you look back on that as an experience? So I worked for um, the, the show presentation team. So basically the team that put on the show around the game for the for the the fans for the for the arena so not the not the broadcast but all all of the stuff going on inside now i only joined the team so th- there was a team that had been working on it for months and months and months before and then i joined the team 6 weeks maybe before the olympics and i was just horrified when at how unprepared they were because I, I was basically coming in to be their basketball expert yeah like a lot of these guys had worked on events and worked in television and now they're charged with looking after the basketball and you know, day one, it's like, right. So it's uh, it's two twenty minute halves, right, Greg? And I'm like, how long have you guys been working on this? Um, but no, like I, I just, I just um, basically was their basketball mind. I yeah. mean, they knew what they were doing technically and show calling and with the lights and and whatever. I just had to advise them about the 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 ins and outs of basketball and also you know help with crowd participation ideas and and stuff like that so and and then you know interviewing players afterwards and it was getting played on 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 the big screen so i basically was there to be the show presentation team's basketball expert at the at the olympics and at the and at the paralympics i actually was the guy with the headset making the calls about right okay this music now when this person goes on here and actually it's quite nerve-wracking um some of that olympic stuff because in before the game there's like a sequence of events and everything has to run exactly to time because it's got to tip off exactly to time because the whole world is 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 watching and and so you know you're like 20 minutes before you've got this five minutes before you've got the anthems two minutes before you've got this and the nerves, like when you're responsible for playing out the correct national anthem and it's got to be exactly on time and you push it and it doesn't play. So there were, there were some hairy moments there. But it, that was, you know, again, an amazing experience, the Olympics. Was there any disasters behind the scenes with the basketball that kind of, I don't know, either you managed to cover up or maybe you didn't manage to cover up that you kind of look back on like, oh, I can't believe that happened. I don't think, I don't think anything really went wrong at the Olympics. I think there was one point I think Dizzy Rascal was meant to perform at one point and there was a row because he was wearing an Adidas t-shirt and so he didn't he didn't play. I think that was a thing but I only I only heard about that second hand because I wasn't directly involved in that. Yeah. But um there was a bit of a faux pas the year before so we did a test event in 2011 to make sure that you know everything was going to work for the Olympics. And at one of the games it was uh, Australia versus China. And so we had to play out the anthems and we played out the Australian one. And then we played the second one and the Chinese were looking at each other confused. And they came over and they were not happy because it wasn't their national anthem. And it turned out that, um, what, what was it? Basically, we it, it, instead of CNA being China, it was, was it Canada or, or something? We played out the wrong national anthem, basically. Oh, maybe you played Chile, Chile. Chile, that's it. Yeah, it was yeah. Chile. It was CHI. Yeah. And the guy pushing the button thought CHI was Chile uh, and CNA actually was China. So CHN, that, CHN's China, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There yeah. speaks a man of experience. <laughs> um, but that caused a bit of a diplomatic incident um, <laughs> that, 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 that we had to smooth over. But no, at the, at the, at the Olympics, pretty yeah. much everything, everything was, was smooth. And actually, it was amazing. Like, we had so many celebrities in the crowd. Because obviously, in the, the basketball, in terms of star power, outside of Usain Bolt at the Olympics, star power, basketball is, is where all the stars are at. So 
you know, we had, uh, I think we had Obama in there at one point, and we had Schwarzenegger and David Beckham, and they were filming Fast and the Furious in London at that time. So Vin, Diz Vin Diesel was at half the games, Ludacris was there. Um, so yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was full on though. Like I didn't have a day off for like two months. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it, was a, it, was, it was a good experience. In terms of having the Great Britain basketball team there, um, <clears throat> you know, as someone that had been, well, on some level would have been following them and, and sort of uh, knowing what's been going on. Like, what was that like for you to see a GB team at sort of London, the London Olympics? And I guess, did you feel like everyone else that it was going to be the opportunity to really help mm. propel the sport? And yeah, kind of what were your feelings around that? 100%. So as someone who had been involved in the basketball scene for about 12 years by that point, at various levels, from streetball to helping Nike and the NBA with events, I, like most others, was a firm believer, this is our opportunity. Like, we're, we're going to have the best players in the world here. Um, they're going to be splashed all over the, the, the front pages and, or, you know, TV and whatever. And then when the moment came, do you know what I think actually really hurt basketball? Was Britain did so well at that Olympics. They were winning medals every single day that that was getting all the press. Um, Whereas in previous Olympics, you know, the, the 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 basketball, again, because of the star power, had got so much attention with the UK press because um, we were winning, we were winning golds every single day. It didn't it didn't get any coverage. And I think that was a big part of of, mm. of, 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 of why this legacy, this, you know, sudden explosion of interest in basketball that we all thought would happen just didn't happen. I think it's because of the success of the GB, the wider GB team is my, is my personal um, yeah. take on it. But in terms of seeing GB playing there and, and representing, I, I genuinely believe we could get, we could have got out of that group stage and that, um, that the, the meltdown we had against um, Australia. Australia was, was, you know, really sad. I mean, obviously, you know, Pat, Pat, Patty Mills is obviously an amazing player, but I genuinely think we could have got out of that um, that group. Yeah, uh, with with the talent that we had that year. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was just media coverage of the sport in general. You know, again, you're a journalist, so you're from that world, um, mm. and then you're obviously from basketball. So, you, and you've seen over the course of however many years, I would guess that probably the media coverage of, of the sport hasn't changed a lot in the time since Streetball Cut UK through to, through to now when you're talking about mainstream mm. media. Kind of what's your perception of that and why, why do you think basketball has struggled to break through in the UK? Well, I mean, I would say, I would say it, it's fallen off. So when I first got into basketball in, in those mid-90s, you know, we used to have like a weekly little newspaper called Slam Dunk. You could buy Fever magazine readily in, in, in the stores. I think there was another UK magazine uh, it was on terrestrial television, either ITV with Alton Bird or then um, Channel 4 did really good coverage of, of the NBA for a few years in the late night. Basically, the, the second Jordan 3 Pete they covered. Um, so there was way more basketball coverage when I first got into it. Um, and then it just, it just, and, and BBL as well, you know, BBL was on Saturday evenings on Sky Sports and uh, there would be thousands of people in, in the arena. And for one reason or another, it fell off. I think um, I don't fully know all the ins and outs. I'm not really a BBL guy, but my understanding is, and as someone that was working at ITV at the time, my understanding is, you know, ITV Digital came along with an offering um, that the BBL decided to go with and came off Sky. Obviously, ITV Digital flopped. 
and then the BBL weren't on Sky anymore. So that had a negative impact on 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 that league. I think the streetball phase came and and went. You know that brought a lot of fresh people in who didn't necessarily like the structured organized sport but like this cool culture hip-hop urban thing i think that um came and went but just in general in in this country it's it's all it's almost like football to the exclusion of almost everything else you know with a bit of tennis and rugby and, and cricket here and there but i also think there's a massive bias against american sports here i just don't think the british media take american sports seriously they think it's all hot dogs and pom-poms and cheerleaders and they see it as a bit of a gimmick um and yeah the nba come to town well they didn't come this year did they not last year uh but this well yeah they did come in january but then this that was going to be the last one okay by the looks of things yeah but it was always just like a gimmick and a fad and you know as 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 i'm sure all your serious um viewers will recognize you know half the coverage is like what football players are here in the crowd um so i just think there's a there's just a american sports in general are not taken seriously over here and it's football 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 and like i say i we had all hoped that 2012 would change that it would really peak yeah. the interest but it just it just didn't happen yeah obviously you worked at sky for a long time and freelance right mm. uh and i, I remember that kind of any time there was any type of basketball story, whether it was the NBA or to do funding or whatever, mm. you know, you'd regularly be brought on as a pundit and stuff. Mm. Um, did you ever pitch basketball stories and kind of when you were speaking to, I don't know, whoever it was that makes, the editor, that makes those editorial decisions, kind of what was the response? Was it that like, oh, it's basketball, like we don't care? Like, Yeah, you'd ha- I, I did, I did. So at Sky News, you know, I did sell a few basketball things, you know, like when FIBA were making the decision about whether to allow us to play in the Olympics, you know, I, I got us to cover that. Um, but it had to be really like big picture um, stuff. Uh, so I couldn't just sell it like, oh, it's the BBL finals this weekend. You know, we, we should cover it because they, you know, they, they didn't care. But if it was something wider, like, oh, the Olympics or legacy yeah. or community or something like you, you had to you have to have. Um, and as anyone that writes, you know, press releases will know you've got to find a peg that's going to make it interesting to a broad to a broad audience so yeah. I, I managed to do that a few times um at sky news and you know we got we got uh, basketball one but yeah if it was just about the sport i don't care yeah that's crazy do you, do you ever see that changing and if it is to change how could how could it change like, what does the sport need to do collectively to be more attractive to the media god i you know if i had the answer i would i would i would be trying to help i mean I think if you, I think the way things had changed was back in the day before the internet, if it wasn't for that terrestrial television coverage, I wouldn't have got into it and loads of people wouldn't have got into it. What you have now is you can access anything. You can get NBA League Pass, you can watch it, you can watch these things online. But the thing is, you have to already be a fan to do that. Without regular terrestrial coverage and in your face, it's here. You're not going to bring in anybody new. Now, how, how, how do we do that? I honestly don't know. I can't see sports editors anytime soon deciding to scrap some football coverage um, for, for some basketball coverage. Unless, unless like, a team does something outlandish and like, brings over like an NBA player. or th- Someone's got to almost, uh, I hate to say this, but someone's almost got to do a bit of a gimmick that's going to that's gonna be a hook for the, mm. for the media. Because just like, oh, you know, the BBL grinds on or whatever. From from the editor's point of view, just, they're, they're, they're just not interested. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's tragic, but 
unless there is some radical change, um, I, I I can't see mainstream media putting yeah. it on anytime soon. It's funny you said that the, the probably the biggest thing that I've done a complete U-turn on in terms of my opinion is TV coverage, where you know I've always found that a lot of the older heads, especially a lot of people involved with the BBL, it's like, oh, we just need a TV deal. If we get a TV deal, it would change everything. And, and I've always, obviously I'm very pro-internet and pro-digital, and I'm always like, well, was, you know, you've got access to a, a huge audience at any time. But funny enough, at the NBA game in January, I went and stood in, in the foyer for about two hours just interviewing people uh, and asking what, what made you come to the game, you know, uh, what's your interest in the NBA, and then asking them, do you follow the BBL? And of course, generally, pretty much all of them didn't. They're all, they're all a lot of them were, were NBA fans, but were not interested in the BBL. And when I said to them, uh, why not, or what would spark that interest? And they're like, well, I just don't know anything about it. Like, if it was on TV, and they all pointed to TV, 100%. it's like they're on TV. And then that made me think, like, that actually is the thing that would make the difference, is having the terrestrial TV coverage. 100%. Even, even in this day of people consuming media on demand and Netflix and whatever, um, without it being front and centre, a, a big portal, be it Sky, ITV, BBC, you know, someone mainstream that's going to hit the millions and potentially attract some new ones. I don't, I don't see it. You know, if you're already a basketball fan, cool, sick. You know, I, I've, I've got, I've got Lee Pass on my phone. I, I can watch every single game every night. Or if I, you know, I, if I want to go online and, and watch BBL stuff, I can do it. But you're not attracting anybody new. And it's like, it's like you say, unless it is front and center on a big platform television, that's where you get the, the new, the new fans. Do you think a, a once in a generation star from the UK, like actually through, from the UK system, mm. come up through the, from the UK that is MVP le- NBA MVP level, um, global superstar status? Do you think that kind of thing could move the needle? I th- yeah, I think it could. I think it could. Like if we had like a a Luka Doncic, you know, you see what he's doing in the NBA now and like the, the interest he's generating back home. And there, you know, there was a while when Luke Luar was was getting on TV, and and the the British media were picking it up. And there was a while where you know the line was he's Britain's most highly paid uh, sports star. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's a hook. You know, as someone that works in news, that's a hook that's going to make you put it on. So yeah, I th- I think actually that that might be our our greatest hope is if someone really makes it, and then that that sparks a bit more more interest. Yeah. But then how how do you then translate you know a Brit smashing it in the NBA to come watch the BBL how how do you make that transition is the yeah is the it's tricky tough one part. isn't it yeah. and there is a, there's definitely a whole thing where it's like when when people's reference point is the NBA it almost sets them up for disappointment when they go to a BBL game and it's just not that experience right that's the thing although I will say you know I have brought so many people over the years to their first basketball game and they're always I, I would say 90% of the time they're impressed they're like oh like this is better than I thought this is so much faster than I thought um so yeah, it, it's getting people to actually go and see it in the first place, and I, I think I think you know if you if you put on a half decent show, you can you can get some fans. But it's 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 the chicken and the egg. How do you get them there in the first place? The other thing I, I did want to touch upon was um, the magazine. Mm. So uh, started as Fade Away, mm-hmm. and then evolved into MVP. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of what, what was the thinking behind that, and I guess what what's the what's the backstory behind it all? So I got approached in 2009. So by this point, I've, it's been a couple of years since I've kind of stopped doing the, the, the internet stuff. But I, was, I still had my hand in, you know, I, I did 
Kobe interview. I did some LeBron stuff. I was still doing bits and pieces with Nike and the NBA here and there. And I got approached by a guy called Jake, who was a photographer, who had uh, previously, I think, helped set up a, a hip-hop magazine. And he wanted to set up a basketball magazine. He was working with a guy in the, in the UK basketball community. And he said, you should do a basketball magazine and you should talk to this guy, Greg, about being in charge of the content. So he got in touch and I was like, yeah, let's give it a go. Um, so, you know, we, I, I, I bought in Mark, Mark Woods, my best mate, Mark Woods, who's always quick to comment on my, uh, on my clothing on social media. Um, so I bought him, like, obviously Mark Woods was, you know, the, the, the in terms of being a, a serious, um, basketball journalist. He's the one. He's, he's, he's the one. He, you know, he, he, he lived up in, uh, it was still does, to my knowledge, live up in Edinburgh. But I bought him in as the assistant editor because I knew he he would write so many of the UK articles. He had so many of those connections. I knew I would write more of the lifestyle stuff and the NBA stuff. And basically, it was a team of four of us. So me and Mark on the on the, on the editorial side, Jake would handle all the the business side of it, all the, all the ad sales, um, getting all the photos. Um, dealing with the printers and then a guy called Harry who would be the designer who in InDesign or whatever program he was using would put all the everything together um, now I, I knew it's going to be pretty decent but when I got that first copy in my hand the quality of it as a product was so good it was better than most magazines in the in in the store it was almost like a hard hard copy thick, yeah. certainly at first certainly you know we we, we did start trimming our costs as, as, as we went down the line. But those first several issues, you know, embossed, you know, fadeaway, embossed logo, it was such a quality product, I was amazed. So we were at first available in Borders, and then Borders went bust in the, in, in the recession. And actually, funnily enough, the reason why Jake came to me to set this thing up was he ran a photography business and he was worried that the recession was going to hit his business. So he was like, right, I've got to diversify. I've got to, I've got to set up a magazine. So the recession in 2009 was actually what sparked Fadeaway and MVP. Um, so yeah, but so when, when the first one came back and the quality was so good and people, it was flying off the stores in Borders, like sold out and people, people were emailing, like, you know, where, oh, Borders are sold out, how can we get it? We were like, oh, wow, we're onto something. So we ended up um, doing a deal with WH Smith for a bit but then we realized actually what made the most business sense was to give the magazine away for free um because then we could do like five thousand per per issue if you know if we if we got um you know i contacted junior and, and senior clubs all around the uk and were like give us your address we'll send you 10 20 copies so that uh, that meant we had an order, we, we could distribute five thousand so we could go to um, our advertisers and say, right, we're in, rather than selling two thousand, we're going to give away five. So, bigger audience, you know, up your uh, up your mind. And you know, we had we had adverts from big brands, you know, uh, Adidas, K One X, Two K, ESPN were our official media partners. In fact, that media partnership actually was what allowed the magazine to continue for as long as it did. We ran, I think we ran it for like five years, um, but that was a real learning experience because I'd never done. I'd never run a, a magazine and not so much from an editorial side because, you know, writing stories, 
that that came that's something I'd always done mm. but the business side of it and the technicalities of it and oh I need it in CMYK and I need I need it this many DPI and uh, you know I'm talking about like resolution of photos here and and just the, the business of doing things it taught me it taught me a lot there were so many times where I wanted to jack it in because we we didn't we, we made enough to keep it going and we got to do some really cool stuff like travel and 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 uh, you know trips with Nike and stuff like that we didn't really get paid from it and you know I was you know I was in relationships and I was working a lot and there were so many times I wanted to jack it in but then when I took my current job that I that, that, that I work now uh, like a full-time staff job I had to lock it off so that was that was at the beginning of 2015 but we, I mean we had a five six year run which for a magazine is not why bad. did it switch from fade away to MVP we like a lot of people didn't understand what fade away meant to be fair, a lot of people didn't understand what MVP <laughs> yeah, meant either. Um, but yeah, we just um, we, we and and also we sort of we we kind of broke away from one of the guys um, who had helped set it up, and we just wanted a bit of a refresh and a rebrand to slightly distance ourselves from some stuff that had gone down. Um, but uh, but as MVP, it was certainly known more as MVP. We did more issues as MVP, and it was as MVP that we were sending out five thousand per issue. Yeah. So way more people were 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 reading it. Um, but yeah, like we did, you know, we did some cool stuff, and and people enjoyed it. And like I say, I I can't take any credit for the quality of it, but that that was always what stood out to me. You know, a couple of the covers, we did one where LeBron had gone to the Heat. And then everybody went to the Lakers, like they got Dwight Howard and Steve Nash and everything. And we did one that was like, um, Star Wars was like the title. And it was like LeBron holding a star in space. And like, it, like all the stars were like embossed silver coming out of the cover. And every time it came back, I'd be like, Jake, like, how are you doing this? But also, how much are you spending on the printing, <laughs> bruv? Like, this is why we're not making any money. But no, it was, and, and to, to, be, to be fair to Jake, he was just all about the quality. He like he didn't he didn't care about basketball. He he just wanted to produce a really really quality product, and we did. You know, five yeah. six years we did, and it was uh, it was it was a cool thing to do. And obviously MVP lives on. Um, and I'm assuming you're completely yeah. cut off from it now. Yeah. And and Mark Woods is sort of the, yeah, the head of the show. That's all him. Yeah. And so when did when did you officially step away from that? When when I joined my my job that I do now, um, you know, I took a staff job. Uh, I, I think technically I wasn't really allowed to be having any like side income things uh, or anything like that, so I had to I, I had to lock everything off. Uh, but, but I was fine, you know. By that point, I was like thirty six, thirty seven years old or whatever. So I was like, right, focus now, focus. Could you ever see yourself making a return to basketball in some capacity, or do you think it's that's just a stage of your life that's done now, and you look back on it very fondly, and it's created a lot of memories for you and a lot of other people, um, but you don't want to be involved or do you think it could be a possibility i think it's very unlikely i think i'm at a stage now where you know i'm at a point in my career where you know i've come quite far i live in dubai <laughs> like i don't <laughs> I, i'm not even in, in in the ends anymore to be to be covering stuff um and pl I, I can't i just can't see what would come along that would offer a stable enough long-term enough high-paying enough thing that I would yeah. I would I would want to go and do it and I'll be honest with you as well Sam th there were times when I was fully in the basketball thing where I would take 
two months or seven months in, in, in one case off of doing a news thing. I was being paid to do basketball full time. And you know what? When you're being paid to do it full time, it starts feeling like a job. Like honestly, there, there were times where I was like, oh, this is long. Like, I'm contracted to get this clip done by Tuesday and I really can't be bothered. So I would say, you know, they say do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. It's not entirely true because when you when 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 you have to do the the thing that you love, it does become a bit of a grind. So that's why that's why I did do it for for like eleven I think eleven years. I juggled I juggled the the two, which is a long time. I wouldn't have done it that long if I didn't like doing it. But I loved the variety. I loved having the news thing, but then also having the basketball thing. So to to revert to your question, I think it's very unlikely that I'd end up doing something basketball related because my my job is so full on that I would I can't take anything else on I don't think I would be allowed to anyway as per my contract I don't live in the UK anymore um I'm out the game to be honest and and I'm you know unless unless it's offering me a, a, a long-term career path I can't I can't see yeah. why why I would do it so I guess to, to wrap up because we're coming on over, well, over an hour and a half here um when you talk about legacy and kind of the legacy history of Cut UK and I guess your 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 basketball related career, um, you know, what do you think the legacy of the site is? Like, what do you think it is, has meant to people? And I guess, what do you want it to be? What do you want people to see it as? I think legacy. I just think it provided a lot of entertainment for a lot of people for several years. You know, the stories people used to tell me of sixth form colleges like blockingstreetball.co.uk because it used to cause so much riots in in the library you know in the early days before people had the internet at home they'd all download the clips and you know they'd be shouting and screaming in the library and honestly so many people used to tell me their school or their college of blockstreetball.co.uk so you know it provided so much entertainment it provided so much banter like the beef on the message boards who's you know Westminster Warriors versus Ealing Tornadoes versus Middlesbrough College versus like that that was all fun and banter um and you know I I'd say we kind of made little mini celebrities out of a bunch of people who who became you know known on the scene and I I think they probably enjoyed that um I enjoyed getting to 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 travel and everything and and but in in terms of legacy I definitely think we were i don't think it's gassing it to say it was a movement it was like a movement a culture um that cap captured people's imaginations for a few years um and like i say provided provided a lot of entertainment like i don't think it's much deeper than that it had its time it came and went i loved doing it the guys that were with me loved doing it we had some really cool times and you know net, the, it, it lives on in grainy clips on youtube that you can watch from 2002 and see what we were doing when we were almost 20 years younger <laughs> <laughs> that's a perfect place to leave it greg thank you so much for for coming through thank you you are listening to the hoops fix podcast the official voice of the uk's largest basketball website visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news videos and more